As you make your way back to your seat, you can remain standing, okay, where you're going to read the Word of God. And we trust that the Lord will bless the reading of His Word. Exodus chapter 4, the second book of our Bible, the second portion of the Pentateuch, written by Moses, preserved for us by the Spirit of God and purposed for us to study this morning. Exodus chapter 4, the word of the Lord declares, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He he put it inside his cloak and When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. When he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs... Or listen to your voice. You should take some water from the Nile. And pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile. Will become blood. On the dry ground. This concludes the reading of God's word. May he bless it. In our time together. You can be seated. And children you can be dismissed. To children's church. We have in front of us two chapters that are called a theophany narrative. In other words, it's a portion of scripture where God is audibly speaking to one of his servants. In this case, God is audibly communicating with his servant Moses. In these two chapters, I believe that we can be ministered to effectively by seeing chapter 3 revealing to us the face of God. What does God look like? And then chapter 4, it is being revealed to us the hand of God. What does God do? Chapter 3, Moses says, Who will I say has sent me as a prophet? And God says, I am. God uses the verb form of I am and says, I cause to be, because I cause to be. And then in chapter 4, he says, watch. I told you who I was, I'll do it. I cause to be, I cause to be, I cause to be. And so if we were to learn about God in those two chapters, that's one way I would commend to you, to see his nature, what he's like, he's 
patient and sovereign and mighty and compassionate. What does he do? Cause things to be. By the power of his hand. So the title that I've given for this morning is The Hand of God. We see his face. We see his hand. Now, I want to say something pastorally as we start studying chapter 4. It is possible that we are in danger of being content to only know the hand of God, the things God does for us, but not always as eager to learn the face of God, what God is like. And I would only say two pastoral warnings. One is I don't think we truly know what God does without knowing who God is. We see things and we could misunderstand them if we don't know who it is that's doing them. So that's, that's one concern. The other concern is that we could become a very selfish or gluttonous people, only content by seeing what God does for us, but never really having a desire to know him. So it's just a, it's just a potential danger, and it's something I want to warn you about. However, I don't in any way want to diminish that the people of God should delight in his hand. We should delight in the hand of God. It is the hand of a beloved father. And it's worth adoring. But just don't be too myopic. Tunnel vision. God does this for me. 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 And spend your life content with what God does on our behalf. But, but let's spend time in passages like these getting to know him. So for this morning, I have just two points. God's hand is moving. And in these nine verses, we see first, God's hand blesses for faith giving. God's hand blesses for faith giving. Second, God's hand reigns over all life. God's hand blesses for faith giving and God's hand rules or reigns over all of life. First, God's hand displayed in Exodus 4 is functioning for faith giving. This is the first use of an occasion where a servant is seen as acting in the miracle. That's important. Moses is going to do things that are going to be miraculous. It's important because they are connected with revelation. Why do miracles happen? And miracles happen. Why do miracles happen? To magnify the revelation. To magnify the revelation. I'm concerned that sometimes we don't know why God might do a miracle, so we don't rightly discern miraculous activity. Miracles follow the revelation, as they do here. God is giving these signs to Moses, the signs of his hand, to confirm the truthfulness of the word he had just spoken to Moses. The word of God is primary. The proof is secondary. Now, 
Again, that is meant to be a sort of protection for us. The miracle is not the foremost thing for us to chase. You see, if we were chasing the miracle, we're in fact chasing the hand of God. The word of God is primary. It was primary here in his revelation to Moses. The word of God. I am like this. I do this. I have this thoughtfulness of you. And here's how I'll perform miraculously. The word of God is primary. The proof is secondary. Moses had expressed a concern. God had already commissioned him twice. The same commission spoken two times. And Moses had expressed a sort of humble objection. I don't, I don't think they're going to believe me. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm cut out for this. And now the third time, he expresses his opposition. And God assures him in unmistakable language that the Israelite leaders would listen to him. So let's make sure we know what we're studying here. God is not necessarily trying to convince Moses to go. He's convincing Moses that when he goes, what he tells him to do is going to work. Go to the leaders and tell them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent you to deliver the people from bondage. And they will hear your voice. I, I don't think they will. Now keep in mind, he has reason to be concerned Hadn't he just after killing the Egyptian soldier, hadn't he returned and found them fighting and said, why are you fighting with each other? And they said, who do you think you are? Who made you Lord over us? You don't have any authority here. What, are you going to kill me like you killed him? They had rejected his message already. So he has reason to doubt, but God is going to eliminate that doubt. When you get there, they will hear you. This sort of clearly represented instruction from God is that they would accept the message that he would deliver. Moses is not doubting God's promise. He's doubting if it's going to work when he gets there. God will assure him in three signs. Moses had written down this story. He had already told the story about how God had revealed himself. said, this is what I'm like. Now Moses would describe how God assured him that the task would succeed. So we're on the front end of the whole story. And God says, you can count on me doing what I say I'm going to do. And you'll know that I've done it when you get back here with the congregation of the people and you'll worship me. In this mountain. You'll know. I did do what I said I was going to do. It'll be totally proven then. Now we're on the front end of the story though, right? God gives him evidence. That he will do. What he's saying he will do. But he won't realize it. Completely until he gets back. With the people. After all the interactions with Pharaoh. He'll come back to the place. So what is Moses being asked to do? Walk by faith. What is faith? Faith, according to examples like Hebrews 11, is the substance of the things we hope, but it's evidenced in things we haven't yet seen. And so God is calling Moses to minister in faith that God could do what he says he will do. 
Remember Exodus 3.12? God says to Moses, I will be with you. And when you get back here, you'll know that I did what I said I was going to do. Moses is going to walk by faith and give people a message, a commission, the leaders of Israel, a commission that they will also have to receive by faith. God is going to work in three signs in front of Moses. And I think, it is, it is my humble opinion, that God is going to allow these three signs to be also carried out in front of the leaders of Israel. I think. I don't think these are one-time events. I think the three things that he does, he duplicates them when he goes to the leaders of Israel. The three miracle signs involve changing something into something else. Chapter 4, God is going to change into something else. What wasn't? Chapter 3, God had said to Moses, in the verb form, I am what I am. The verb form, I change because I change. And then in chapter 4, he says, watch. I'll do with my hand what I told you I was like. And the first thing he does is cause to be what had not been when the causer changes the staff into a snake. Verses 2 through 5. Moses appeared to gladly receive the signs. They were helpful for him. Now, he's not super excited about the snake on the ground. Um, It's reasonable, it's really reasonable that we assume that the snake is probably a cobra. And so Moses is right to identify this as a dangerous snake. And the Bible says he ran from it. Um, He puts the staff on the ground and it becomes a snake and he runs. And then God says to him, Come back and take it by the tail. And pick it up and it turns back into a staff. This is really significant because as we study through this narrative of God working through his servant Moses, this staff is going to be pretty significant. This is not the last time that we'll hear about this staff. In fact, you could suggest that the staff reminded Moses all along of what God had promised Moses in chapter 3. I will be with you. And every day Moses carries this staff. And God keeps doing things as Moses operates with this staff. You could argue that this was a visual reminder of God's promise. And those are good things to his people. Snakes are reasonably frightening to most people. And when you suddenly encounter one, isn't that the worst part? of a snake is when you don't know it's there and all of a sudden it startles you. That's the worst part. I mean, if someone comes and tells me there's yet another snake in the church bus garage, that's, that's one thing. But when it's my week to mow the church lawn and I open that door and I'm always so self-conscious about the people who might be in the building who watch me stare into the large garage door for five to ten minutes just scoping everything out to make sure that I'm not startled by yet another one of our rib mountain snakes. I understand that snakes can be startling. And the worst part is the shock of seeing a snake. 
The purpose here is not to scare Moses, but to help introduce Moses to God as true God. And therefore, to the people who Moses would go and speak prophetically to. I think, as I said earlier, I think God grants Moses the ability to go and reproduce what he had seen in front of the elders of Israel. Second, not only does the causer cause the staff to change into snake and back again, but secondly, the causer changes his healthy hand into leprous hand. Interesting, look at verse number 8. This is sort of a backup miracle. He says, okay, if they don't believe what you've said, and if they don't believe the snake and staff thing, then let's try this. And he tells Moses to put his hand inside his cloak to his chest. And he changes what was healthy and what was helpful into what's harmful and changes it back again. The skin disease, probably a lot of your translations have a little footnote next to the word leprous. It's, re- it's literally the word flaky. So when he pulls his hand out of his cloak, the skin was definitely uh, um, harmed by something. And it's reasonable to use leprosy, as leprosy was something that was well-known in the culture. But it was probably the skin was flaking and falling apart. And um, it's a sign that you probably were experiencing a terminal disease. There was elaborate precaution taken to avoid contact with people who had leprosy. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Luke 17 are all examples of places where leprosy was taken very seriously and great care was taken so that the the leprosy wouldn't um, contaminate people who came into contact with you. But could that miracle convince people that the God who had sent Moses was really the one true God, the God over all other supposed gods? Could it? Well, yes, it's reasonable. In ancient culture, there's a strong association between disease that people experienced and the judgment or the power of their gods. So if you had appeased the gods, they would keep you healthy. If you had offended the gods, certainly you would have sickness. So when it came to health in the ancient culture, how God felt about you was very important because they assumed that the gods had power over sickness and health. So this is an effective sign. And God tells Moses, if the staff and snake and the word of your voice have not persuaded them, then this will help. And then the third sign. The causer changes water into blood. This third sign causes our minds to go forward into Exodus 7, where the Nile River is turned into blood. This sign anticipates that plague. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 19, that God had said, he already knew Pharaoh would not release the people except by a strong hand, a mighty hand. And here, God is going to demonstrate to Moses that the God who was sending him had just that mighty hand. 
The turning of the Nile into blood is a really serious threat to the Egyptians. God would demonstrate that threat in this one small illustration. Take water from the Nile in your hand and pour it on dry ground. And as you pour it on dry ground, it will become blood. Ours is a God who causes to be things that are not. I read earlier when I prayed the New Covenant from Jeremiah 31. The New Covenant is a promise of God to do what had not been done yet. To to take a heart of stone and turn that heart into a heart of flesh. God does what hasn't been done God makes us new creation. Now, I just want to say a word about the power of God as a saving God. There might be people here, and there will certainly be people who you share the message of Christ with, who will say, I am unsavable. I am unsavable. And if you're here and feel like, I cannot be saved, I could not possibly honor God with a transformed life. Why would he ever save me? I am deplorable. There are so many bad things about my personality or my character or my past. He just wouldn't work that way. I want you to understand that God causes to be what has not been. He makes old things pass away. And all things become new. And if you're here and you're not sure that that could be true of you, there are dozens of testimonies in the room that would say, oh, before I knew Christ, it was obvious that I was old and ruined and only he could cause me to be something new. When I read this passage of Scripture, um... Don't forget what's happening. God is not necessarily trying to persuade Moses to believe. But that what he was telling Moses to do was going to work. You're going to go to people who the last time you interacted with them, they doubted you and said that you were more of the problem than the solution. But I want you to go to them now and tell them. And it's going to work. And Moses said, I don't think it's going to work. What God is doing is reassuring his servant that what he sends him to do is going to work because God is going to cause it to work. That is really helpful for me when I think about global mission. That's really helpful for me when I think about sharing the gospel with lost people. How many of you, if I can ask you right now, how many of you have ever talked to someone about Christ And that person did not agree that Christ was necessary for them to be saved. How many of you ever shared the gospel with someone and they just, they were not convinced. They didn't believe it. Go ahead. Go ahead. How many of you have, you've spoken to someone about Christ and they were like, oh, nah, thanks for sharing, but I don't think that's the way it works. And you've experienced what you might define as failure. And then we have all of these promises of God where God says, I'm like this. And this is how my hand accomplishes the things I say I will accomplish. And I want this text to encourage you 
to not assume that because the last time you spoke to someone, they didn't believe you, that you should stop speaking to people. Because that's exactly what's happening in this theophany narrative, is God is speaking to his servant and saying, the thing I send you to do, I will surely do it. If if I didn't think that God would do awesome things by the foolishness of preaching, I would certainly do something else. I'm just not cut out to make lasting life change in other people. Just not that clever. But when God says things like the foolishness of preaching will be used to make radical changes, and when God says things like sow seed because my word will never return void, I think, okay, I believe that. And you believe that. As you hear from someone who says, ah, that whole good news of Jesus Christ is a sham, I don't believe it. And you turn immediately around, dust yourself off, and say it to somebody else. You are expressing a faith that you believe God will do what he said he will do. And so please, endure in seed sowing. Because we're learning a lot from Moses. We're learning a lot about God from Moses. The second thing, so the first thing is, God's hand works for faith building. The second thing is, God's hand rules over all of life. It rules over everything. Because God's saying, I want you to go do this, because I can get it done. And then if the next point was, well, Pharaoh said no. Ah, too bad. <laughs> that would be a real problem, right? That is a significant hole in our confidence. But the next thing we see is that God's hand rules over all of life. First, in verses 8 and 9. The one true God reigns over staff and cobra. Okay, so we just walked through these three signs that God gives Moses. Now, I want to take, um, I suppose I'll call it a little bit of liberty. Do you know what the study of types are in the Bible? I have a book in my office. The title of the book is This Means That. I don't love that book. It is a full book about typology. Okay, there are some types in the Bible you know the, the, the bronze staff with the serpent on top that the people had to look at to be healed when they were wandering in the wilderness later on? You know that, that picture? Well, that, we're told by Jesus, was clearly a type of the Messiah, the Christ, lifted up. And all who looked to him in faith would be healed, right? Okay, so that's clearly a type. Well, typology sometimes goes way too far. Typology makes a type out of everything. And so I'm always a little suspicious of typology. However, this morning, I think I have a valid case for showing you some types. The first one is the staff and the, and the snake. God is going to prove that he reigns over 
things. The first thing he proves he reigns over is a staff. Now, um, I, I debated this this morning. I'm going to invite you to use your phone right now if you want to. And I'm going to invite you to do two things. If you want, if you already are and you're doing it for other things, stop doing that. <laughs> but I, I would invite you to use your phone if you'd like. Because there are two things I think will help you as a Bible student. One is if you look up images of uh, Egyptian pharaoh. You might stumble across an image of an Egyptian pharaoh where pharaoh is adorned with a staff and a serpent. He may have on his headdressing a cobra on the front. Or he may have wound around his forearm a serpent. And that might help us to understand that this might be a, a good typology for us to learn. So God doesn't randomly just choose something and say, hey, see how I can control the staff and the snake? I think God is helping a citizen of Egypt, like Moses, and the elders of Israel say, wait, wait, wait. The cobra, which represents the goddess of southern Egypt, can be controlled by God, the one true God. And the staff that Pharaoh would hold in his hand could be controlled by God. God could be in charge of things so near to the ruler of the day. Just pull back and imagine that you're one citizen who has been living in Egyptian slavery for 400 and some years. And you've seen these slave masters have jewelry that adorns their, their snake goddess. You've seen the rulers walk around with a ruling staff. And all of a sudden, you see God display a sign that is meant to build faith and it relates to a staff and a serpent. I think that God is doing a good thing and giving a good gift when these signs speak to deep truths and realities about the experience of this people. So the first thing, the one true God reigns over the staff and the cobra. The second thing, remember the hand inside the cloak? The one true God reigns over sickness and health. In verse 6 and 7, we have that second sign. One of the rules about leprosy is that you would never allow an infected portion of skin to come into contact with healthy skin. And it's interesting that God says, put your hand inside your cloak, take it out, ah, it's infected. And then God says, okay, put it back. I mean, it's just my hand. What can be done medically to my infected hand? It can be cut off. Okay, now take your infected hand and put it back to your abdomen. Okay? And so he does. That would have been a significant violation of healthy protocol. But he does it. And God is displaying that he rules over our health. Which, like I mentioned before, is really significant in ancient culture. Because a lot of ancient ideology would have been... The gods make me sick or healthy based on how I have angered or appeased them. And so here is the God 
doing independent of anything Moses has done. Miraculous things. Moses hadn't had a leper's hand and then somehow made an impressive sacrifice to God so that when he put his hand back in, he was healed. God was doing that. I want to remind you again. God was performing those miracles for a purpose. The purpose was to help us learn the word. That was the purpose. Please just don't forget that. There are miraculous things that happen by the hand of God. But they are for the purpose of magnifying the word of revelation. And a lot of miracles, supposed miracles, are being done that are completely devoid of any word purpose. But just other purposes. The one true God reigns over sickness and health. For Moses to say by this display, look what Yahweh can do with disease. He's asking the people, have any of the gods that you've been introduced to in Egypt done anything like this? And the answer is no. Third, and this one is maybe the most significant. And if you still have your phone out, you can pull up your map. If you have on your phone, uh, like a Google map or a Apple map, and you'd like to see it, you can pull it up on your phone. I think it's helpful. And you're going to want to zoom way, 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 way out. And then scroll down and to the right. And there you will find North Africa. Now, if you have the ability and are interested, you could change it to the satellite view. The aerial view. And then hover over that portion of North Africa that is all brown. That portion of North Africa that is the Sahara Desert. Sudan, Arabia, Africa, not necessarily Arabia, although it is desert. Algeria, Mali, West Sahara. This Sahara Desert region. Now, you have it in focus there. You have all that brown. And about two-thirds the way to the right, do you have a V-shape that is green? On your screen, that's the Nile River. That is the lush, life-giving region of the Nile. Um, the Egyptian people worshipped the Nile River. They had a temple to the god of the Nile, Hathi. The Hathi god was male and female god, able on their own, to produce life. You see the reason for... In fact, um, we have in, in uh, modern biology or medicine, we have a term uh, hermaphrodite, male and female, that is related to the word hapi. This god of the Nile was all on their own able to produce, to both fertilize and to nourish. And so if you see the Sahara Desert region... You have this one lush green V that was the Nile River. And God tells Moses, go to the Nile River. He doesn't just say, take water. He doesn't just say, get some water from some well, somewhere, pour it on the ground, it's blood. He doesn't say that, does he? He tells Moses, get a handful of water out of the Nile and pour it on the ground. And the God who they think controls life 
is going to be caused to do something different by the real God. (laughs) I think that's really significant and, quite frankly, really cool. The primary physical source of life. Ancient writing attributes to the Nile the source of keeping the people alive. When Moses would strike the Nile with his staff, he demonstrates God's power over it and God's power over all the other gods. Later, when Ezekiel and Zechariah describe God's sovereign rule over Egypt, they describe God ruling by his drying up the Nile River. In all these things, God is displaying to his people that he is sovereign over Egypt, that he is powerful over everything else that is supposedly providing. God rules over all of our means. Um, Just as a small exercise. Can all of the men, can all of the men age 25 to, oh, this is tough. Can all the men age 25 to 50? Can all the, no, let's go to 65. Let's go to our culture's retirement age. All the men, 25 to 65. Could you just stand up real quick? All men, 25 to 65. You can stand up. Okay. Now, it doesn't take much to look around and see a group of people from our church who are really hardworking, right? This is a group of people who you would call on to get stuff done, okay? Because they're they're not they're not hamstrung by a lot of a lot of disability. They're they're strong physically. They're sharp mentally. And this group of people gets things done. All right, that's all I have to say about that. You can sit down. Now, that group of people is tempted to assume that they provide for and take care of their loved ones by the might of their hands. They're tempted to think that. I've worked hard. I've made really brilliant decisions. I've saved when I should save. I've invested when I should invest. And I've got the world by the tail. All right? If you are a a young person between the age of 10 and 25, if you're between the age of 10 and 25, why don't you stand up? Between the age of 10 and 25, any young person, male and female, Any young person, okay, any young person between the age of 10 and 25. Now look around the room. Have you ever seen energy like that? It wears the rest of us out. Like, goodness, they never stop. I remember my son who's up in the tech booth, I remember when he was young, he would literally have a runner's pace until he napped. He would run until sometimes in the hallway, lay down and sleep. He was either going full speed or not. This group right here has incredible energy. And you can do things academically. Your minds are so sharp. Like you can learn something and remember it. You have no idea how rare that is later in life. And, and you're, you're, you have so much energy and so much strength and, and so much memory. And you might think, I can get good grades or I can have social or athletic success because I have energy and I work really hard. Now sit down. Now that's the second group. Now, there's another group in the room, right? 
basically uh, the group we won't ask to stand on the other end of the spectrum. The Bible praises the gray-haired people for, <laughs> for their wisdom, for their discernment. They have so much life experience. They look at that group that just stood up and say, oh, you're going to make so many mistakes. And they've learned from those mistakes. And they might assume, because of our wisdom, we will be safe. We won't make mistakes again, because we've already made those in our youth. And now we won't, so we'll be well taken care of. This passage of Scripture is really helpful for all of those presuppositions about where you are in life. I've worked hard. God rules over that. I have so much energy and my mind is sharp. God rules over that. I've learned by my mistakes and I won't make them again. God's ruling over that. You know, James says, be careful, you people who say, well, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this or that or the other thing. When in fact you should say, if God wills. And when we say, men, in all of our young strength, when we say, young people, in all of your energy, when we say, elderly folks, in all of your wisdom, if God wills. Then we say, God rules over all life. I would commend that to you. I think God is revealing that to this one servant, to us, in this theophany narrative. In all these things, God is displaying to us, as he said, this is who I am, he's saying, this is how I reign. God describes us as having an ultimate enemy. That enemy is sin and death. The great foe. And he says of that great foe that he is conquered in victory. Grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Christ has conquered our greatest foe. God said... I will deliver my people. I will put for eternity around my throne myriads of people who will worship me. God said, I will do that. And then God works by the power of his hand and sends a redeemer, Jesus Christ, to stand in our place and to do redemption accomplished. God reveals himself as a causer, reveals himself to us as a redeemer, and the might of his hand is Christ himself who accomplishes that redemption, who does what God had said he was like. God's face and God's hand. I hope that the Spirit of God continues to work Rapidly in causing us to have a great adoration 
for beholding God. Not just receiving from God. Well, it's a great expression of our dependence. And it shouldn't be spurned. You should never feel guilty for delighting in what God does toward you. But be careful not to ignore who God is. The God who acts to save his people. Unlike the gods of Canaan, God is a living God who acts. God rules over every other supposed authority. He promises, and he who promises is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's delight in him for who he is. Let's pray. Father, um, these two chapters are a true blessing to us, and I thank you as God of all God's causer, the I am, that you take plain events like this revelation to Moses and you equip your saints to all kinds of good works. To go with joy and boldness to share the message of Christ because we know that the God who promised will do it To steward life as though everything we treasure is temporal and fleeting, but to walk with hope deferred, looking forward to the coming kingdom more than this one, is a good gift. We are set so securely by this revelation on strong footing. So as we worship you, as we steward, as we delight in you, cause us to see that as you promised, you have done, and it is completed. As Christ said, at the cross, it is finished. Make us to grow in that delight of who you are as we see what you do. In Christ's name, amen.